We're going to continue our study in the book of Daniel today. And I'll be reading from Daniel chapter 7, but I'm actually going to begin in the Gospel according to Mark chapter 14. In Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65, we have the trial scene of Jesus before the Jewish Sanhedrin or Supreme Court. He is being investigated. There's testimony given against him, but the testimony is muddled and confused and inconsistent. When Jesus is asked himself to clarify the matter, he remains silent. He knows he's being tried by a kangaroo court, as they sometimes call it. They're going to find him guilty one way or another. They're just looking for something they can use. And then in verse 61, the high priest Caiaphas asks Jesus a very direct question. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. So this is a really remarkable passage because you have a convergence of these three very significant titles. Christ, which is Messiah, Son of God, Son of Man. Jesus claims to be all three. And the high priest Caiaphas accuses him of blasphemy. But why? There is a question I didn't even consider for the longest time when I read this passage, but... When you try to investigate it, it's not quite as easy to answer as you might first suspect. Let me read what N.T. Wright has to say on the subject from his book, Jesus and the Victory of God, addressing this question of why was Jesus accused of blasphemy. He writes, three possible answers may be ruled out at once. Once more, Messiah and Son of God did not mean, in Jewish speech of this period, the second person of the Trinity. Most pre-critical readings of the charge are thus excluded, as is the idea that the Messiah was prohibited by law from declaring himself, so that when Jesus did so, he had finally been trapped into breaking this commandment. Also excluded is the idea that when Jesus said, I am, this was taken as a pronunciation of the divine name. Now, just for clarity's sake, N.T. Wright is, of course, a Trinitarian. And he fully endorses the true divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he is cautioning against here is an over-eagerness on the part of Christians to read a fully developed Trinitarian theology into passages where such a theology is not being emphasized. So when Caiaphas asks him, are you the Son of God? Caiaphas does not mean... Are you the second person of the Godhead? That's not how Caiaphas thought of that title. He thought of Son of God as an honorific title for the Messiah through whom God would rule his chosen people. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll recognize kings are sometimes referred to as sons of God. Also, with respect to the title Son of Man, Son of Man by itself, and that's an important qualifier, by itself, Son of man just means human being. 
And the prophet Ezekiel is often referred to as son of man. And finally, as Wright points out, simply claiming to be the Messiah did not constitute a capital offense. There are other men, so I'm told, during the first century era who made messianic claims, but none of them, to my knowledge, was condemned by the Sanhedrin for committing blasphemy. So if we want to understand the charge, we need to dig deeper into how Jesus is using these titles and how he is investing them with meaning from very key Old Testament texts. There's two in particular. One is Psalm 110. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is teaching in the temple. And in verse 35, he poses a question to his audience. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, and here's Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now, Jesus is not trying to deny, I don't think, that the Messiah is a descendant of David. What he's trying to get his audience to understand is the Messiah is more than just a descendant of David. He is also David's Lord. And he is seated at the right hand of God with authority and power. And this conception of the Messiah is something new he's feeding to his audience. It was not widespread. So we begin to see how Jesus is understanding these texts. And the other key text he uses in his response to Caiaphas is none other than Daniel chapter 7. So we're going to go to the book of Daniel now, and I'm going to begin reading chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon... Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Notice we're going back in time. In Daniel chapter 6, we're told that Darius the Mede is the ruler of the kingdom, right? And Darius the Mede became ruler after Belshazzar died. So now we're going back in time the first year of Belshazzar's reign. And Daniel, who earlier in the book is the interpreter of Nebuchadnezzar's troubling dream, is now the subject of his own very strange and troubling dream. What does he see? Verse 2, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. 
After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. We are told later on in the chapter, the four beasts represent four kings or kingdoms, and the ten horns of the fourth beast represent ten kings who will arise out of the fourth kingdom. John Lennox, in his book Against the Flow, which I quoted last time I spoke from Daniel chapter 2, points out that there is a lot of similarities, interestingly enough, between the beast here in Daniel 7 and the beast described in Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. I'm not going to read the passage to you today, but I'm going to highlight the points of contact Dr. Lennox discovers. The beast in Revelation, like the beast in Daniel, has ten horns that are said to be ten kings. It utters haughty words. It makes war with the saints and prevails. Its authority is limited in Daniel times, times, and half a time. Revelation, 42 months. Now, there are some significant differences, too. If you read that passage in Revelation, you'll see that there are some significant differences but there are enough similarities to at least make the theory that we're talking about the same beast plausible. But Lennox doesn't stop there. He further speculates that these beasts we're told about in the Bible could be figurative expressions of what the Apostle Paul more plainly describes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-10. through 10. And I am going to read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 starting with verse 1, going down through verse 10. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power, false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So according to Lennox, the lawless one could be the reality behind the apocalyptic visions we read about in Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation 13. 
Now, I hope no one's going to be too disappointed this morning when I tell you I'm not going to attempt to advance an argument for or against his interpretation. I find his ideas very interesting. I wanted to share them with you. They might give you some fodder for small group discussion if you do a little homework. But what I want to do is take a step back and just take a look, a general look at this fourth and final beast as what clearly is an embodiment of evil and falsity that has set itself against the Most High God only to be condemned by the courts of heaven and then destroyed. And we read about the judgment in verses 9 through 14. So continuing in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So we're talking about a judgment scene. I looked then because of the sound of great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Then verses 13 through 14, very crucial. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So there are two key figures here in verses 13 and 14. One is the Ancient of Days who is clearly God. The other is the somewhat mysterious son of man figure. After the beast is condemned and destroyed by the courts of heaven, the son of man is presented before the throne, and he is glorified and given everlasting dominion. So who is he? You might be surprised to learn. Many theologians think the son of man is simply and nothing more than a literary symbol for God's chosen people, which in Daniel 7 are referred to as the saints of the Most High. Where does this interpretation come from? Well, it comes straight out of the book of Daniel. Because at the end of the chapter, Daniel himself is given an explanation of what he has seen by an angel. And in verses 23 through 27, this is what he's told. As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for times, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people 
of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and his dominions shall serve and obey him. So you'll notice in the explanation, the title Son of Man does not come up. We are simply told that the kingdom is given to the saints of the Most High. So why do we have the liberty to interpret Daniel 7 differently? And the answer is obvious, because Jesus interprets Daniel 7 differently. Based on his answer to Caiaphas at his trial scene, it should be clear that Jesus does not treat the Son of Man as a symbol, simply a symbol for the people of the Most High. He treats the Son of Man as a particular individual and he identifies himself as being that individual. So he's not just a representation, although you might say he is a representative of the saints of the Most High, in the same way that a king is a representative of the people he rules. And like a good ruler, he suffers oppression with his people, oppression and persecution from the final beast until they are vindicated. That means they are proven to be in the right by the court of heaven. So there is a very clear dividing line in Daniel 7 between the fourth beast and the little horn and the Son of Man and the saints of the Most High. And you will notice there is no middle group. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, neutrality with respect to Jesus is not an option. In this cosmic struggle we are looking at, there is no sitting on the fence. Now I understand why Jesus' words make some people very uncomfortable because they say, these words are tribalistic. He is Jesus is fanning the flames of an us-versus-them mentality that causes so much bitterness and strife, the kind of bitterness and strife that is ruining social and political discourse in our country. And by the way, I am in full agreement that the us-versus-them mentality that so much people have latched onto has done damage to our political discourse and our social discourse. And more now than ever, we need peace makers in the social arena and in the political arena, which Jesus has called us to be, by the way. But to understand what Jesus is saying, you need to understand who he is. To understand where he's coming from, you need to understand who he is. Jesus is God with us. He's truly God and truly man. Now, who is odd? Think about that. What is God? God is love. God is truth. God is goodness. Now, what would you think of someone who said, well, you know what? I'm not really against love, but I'm not for it. I mean, you can love if you want to, but I'm not going to love. I'm going to be neutral. Or what if someone said, you know what? I'm not really against the truth, but I'm not going to tell the truth. I'm not really for the truth. There are some... Sometimes you have to pick a side. There are some things you have to affirm. We have to affirm love. 
We have to affirm truth and the fullness of love and the fullness of truth are to be found in the Son of God. And when we put our faith in Him and are transformed by Him and become like Him, the less tribalistic we will be. Jesus said, love your enemies. Jesus forgave those who persecuted Him. Jesus turned the other cheek. And this is one of the most important lessons of Daniel chapter 7 that gets overlooked because people get caught up in prophetic schema. And they want to make these really detailed and elaborate interpretations, taking every word and every verse and telling us exactly what it means. And they're always wrong. History sooner or later shows us that they're not correct. But what they miss is that the saints of the Most High, they do not conquer the beast through military aggression. They do not conquer the beast through force. They do not conquer the beast by seizing political power. They do not conquer the beast through economic success. They conquer through long-suffering and trust in the living God. Those are their weapons of warfare. And I love what the theologian Miroslav Wolf, Wolf has to say in connection with this. Jesus Christ did not come into the world in order to conquer evildoers through an act of violence, but to die for them in self-giving love and thereby reconcile them to God. The outstretched arms of the suffering body on the cross define the whole of Christ's mission. And we need to remember when we're talking about opposition... Opposition doesn't just come from the world. Some of the stiffest opposition to God has come from communities that claim to be God's people. Think about the trial scene I opened up with. Who is examining Jesus? Who is opposing him? The high priest Caiaphas. The Romans wouldn't have crucified Jesus had it been left to them. It's Caiaphas who is opposing Jesus. And I'm willing to wager anything. In his mind, he's, he thinks he's serving God. He thinks that what he's doing, he's preserving the traditions. He's preserving the temple worship. He's preserving these things that he sees as so valuable. In spite of the fact that Jeremiah pronounced the temple's doom centuries earlier and the temple was destroyed. And years before that, when the Ark of the Covenant was being housed in a tent in Shiloh, the Philistines came and they ravaged the tent and stole the Ark of the Covenant. And now Jesus in Mark chapter 13 has also pronounced the temple's doom. He says there's not going to be one brick of that temple remaining. So time and time again, God has tried to show his people, do not think because you have made these houses of worship and you gather in them, that that legitimizes everything you do. And when Jesus, by pronouncing doom on the temple, by claiming to be the Messiah, by claiming to be the Son of God and the Son of Man, and by investing them, and here's the key point I've tried to drive home, by investing them with the meaning we get from Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, he is claiming for himself an authority that clearly outstrips Caiaphas' own authority. 
When he says to him, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and come with the clouds of glory, he is proclaiming his exaltation, his glorification, his vindication, and his inheritance of an everlasting kingdom. And it makes Caiaphas livid. Here we have the rich, aristocratic, educated Caiaphas and this nobody, this peasant from Galilee, claiming that kind of authority. And so even though Jesus did not break any law, Caiaphas accuses him of blasphemy. He has all he needs. Jesus claimed to be a king. We can use that to kill him. They condemn him to death. And after Jesus was crucified and buried, I'm sure Caiaphas thought, that shows everybody who won. That shows everybody who was vindicated. And he was wrong because he misinterpreted the cross as a defeat. When the cross was the victory of God over sin and hell and death. And the vindication of Jesus through his resurrection is the condemnation of Caiaphas. And those outrageous claims Jesus made. They didn't stay in that tomb any more than his body did. Because not many years later, another young man is brought before the council. And he's being charged with similar charges that were brought against Jesus. We read about it in the book of Acts, chapter 7. The young man Stephen, we are told, is full of grace and the Holy Spirit doing wonderful signs amongst the people. And he's on trial. And he starts giving testimony at his trial. And he does it through going over some of the history of Israel. And if you're not looking carefully, it might seem like he's just giving sort of an irrelevant history lesson. But if you dig into his words in Acts chapter 7, you'll see he's doing something very ingenious. He's saying, you guys who are putting on trial... Understand what's happened in the past. You have the patriarch Joseph, very important figure in Israel's history. Saved Jacob's family from starvation. He said, you know what's interesting about Joseph? He was persecuted by his own brothers. It was his own brothers who sold him into slavery. And then he goes on, he talks about Moses. He says, Moses, the great leader of the Exodus, was initially rejected by the people. He was chosen by God, rejected by the people initially. And then when he brings them to Mount Sinai, the people who rejected Moses initially, then reject God himself and start worshiping idols. And Stephen says, do you not get how stiff-necked you are? Why don't you understand the lesson? Why don't you listen to the Holy Spirit instead of persecuting the people God has sent to save you? And they are furious, and so they condemn him to death. But before he dies, he sees a vision, and something very interesting happens. He looks up into heaven, and this is what he sees. And it's written there in Acts chapter 7. He says, I see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Daniel 7, Psalm 110, there again. So you begin to see that this text really does play a key role in the theology of the New Testament. But here's something even more remarkable. I'm told that many Jews who were persecuted by pagans in the ancient times, as they were dying, would call God's curses down upon 
the people who were killing them. Now, I don't know about you, but from just a common sense perspective, it's kind of difficult to see why that is wrong. Now, you might think that's silly of me to say it, but if you were being, if you were innocent, you're guiltless, and you're being murdered by people, why would it be wrong to say God is going to judge you for this? What you're doing is not right. And yet Stephen, before he dies, the last words out of his mouth, I think, are, God, do not hold this sin against them. Church, that is not just a new morality. That is a new humanity that we are seeing there. That is something truly different that has entered on to the world stage through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And Stephen was victorious, just like Jesus was. He took up the weapons of truth, love, and mercy, and he conquered Now, I know in our day-to-day conflicts, they are not as epic or dramatic as the struggles the early Christians faced, granted. And we don't feel like we're doing battle with apocalyptic beasts with blasphemous horns. But there's a really important principle Jesus gave us in the New Testament that's so overlooked, and yet it's so vital. And I try to come back to it again and again because I need to be reminded of it. He said, if you cannot be faithful in the little things, you are not going to be faithful in the bigger things. So when someone insults me, when someone takes advantage of me, breaks a promise, whatever, I can repay evil for evil, I can repay slander with slander, and I can meet unforgiveness with unforgiveness. Those are the weapons the world uses. But what Jesus is trying to tell us, what Stephen is trying to tell us is, you use those weapons, even if you win, you lose. That is not a victory. But if we will take up love and mercy and faith in the Son of God in our day-to-day struggles, through long-suffering trust in Him, then we too will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of glory. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, we thank you for the beautiful day you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity we have to worship. We thank you for all these little hearts and minds who are singing your praises. And we, we pray your protection of their lives. We pray that these little ones will grow up to be burning lamps for your truth and glory, God, that you will protect them from the evil one. And I pray for every body and soul in here that we would not resist your Holy Spirit, but that we would accept and welcome your voice and your influence in our lives and make you Lord over all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.